Thanks, Nick. Morning, everyone. I had my welcome to that of Sam's and um, Steve's. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how good your memories are. In the first half, I imagine they're fairly good. Uh, we're all trying to erase the memory of the weekend where Collingwood got up and worked their way into a, another grand final. Put us in a, it's put us in a very perilous position, hasn't it? What do we do here? Do we, do we support Collingwood or do we go for an interstate side? It's kind of like we just hope Jesus comes back and uh, we don't have to deal with it. Well, that'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? We could all say, we can all pray with John at the end of Revelation, come, come Lord Jesus, come. And uh, Paul might be upset with that, but um, yeah, I don't know. Hey, at the start of the year, we, we, we were in 1 John. However, we, we never got to do the final message in that series because of various factors. And kind of due to various factors today, uh, to be able to do that message today sort of fits neatly into, into the program. Um, <clears throat> and and we'll, be, we'll be doing that. And we'll be looking at it. It's, it's, it's called the final matters of faith. Final because it's the final part of what the, uh, what the actual book is. It's the end of the book. And final because that's all there is to say on the matter. John's like, here it is. Um, some, of the, some of the factors that have kind of gone into this is next week I'm actually away. I'm speaking at a young adults camp uh, up in uh, a place called Back Creek. Uh, I know. Which is a suburb of Yakandanda. Um, and I know some of you are thinking, what kind of super Christian works on grand final weekend and there's nothing too spiritual to it it's just that i'm a carlton supporter and i'm no longer interested in football so <laughs> that's what i'm doing there and then after that i'm away on two weeks leave <laughs> going um back up to Wodonga and then out to do some genesis ecology stuff around the country just helping jesus get things back to uh, the way he created them by removing feral animals in foreign environments and 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 stuff like that and so I thought it would just fit nicely and helps my OCD issues about not tidying up and finishing a message to do that final message in, of 1 John today. But as I, well, that was my hope. But as I got into it and as I started looking through the passage, I realised there really is two sermons uh, in this final matter. So I could have done one sermon, but we would have been here till Wednesday. And given it's school holidays and we've got kids in the congregation, I thought I'll spare you that. And we're just going to be in 1 John uh, 1 to 12 this morning, so I hope that's cool with you guys. Hey, um, I've, I've set myself up upside down. Today, if, if we speak of faith, most people um, are able to organise some kind of uh, thought or some kind of explanation um, that, that, that explains, in a way, whether it's tangible or intangible, or the hope or the worldview that lies behind the practice of life. Like some people say, oh, I believe that there is a God, or, or I don't believe that there is a God, and then both of them will go on to explain to you the, the God that they either believe in or don't believe in, which is always an interesting thing when people explain to me the God they don't believe in. Um, and I go, well, how about I give you another explanation? Some people are fairly passive about this and other people are rather militant about this. But most people in this current contemporary day and age will say that faith, though, is, is, is private. 
It's personal, but it's, it's private. It's, it's personal, but it's also relative. It's, it's subjective. Uh, one person's faith is not binding on another person's. It, they, they cannot make these exclusive claims to say that their faith is the faith. There's truth to be found, exclusive truth to be found in their particular faith. Well, it was certainly uh, some of the challenges that faced the early church, the Christians that John was, was writing to. The Gnostics had, had, had opened up all these questions about where does truth lie? Um, truth is, is, is a mystery, you see. Uh, each person has to seek that knowledge for themselves. Sounds very new age, doesn't it? Not much has changed. Jesus is not the, the definite object of God's truth and revelation. He was merely someone who came to, to point us to the mystery, to say, consider these things and, and perhaps uh, you might find out some truth for yourself. He himself had discovered uh, what the mysteries and, and, and the great mysteries of the world were and his followers should do likewise. That was kind of some of the thinking that was starting to get pushed back across the table to the Christian church. They pushed all kinds of convincing, standing ideas across this table that caused in the church various uh, levels of response from discomfort, you know, oh, geez, I don't know how I feel about that, to, to doubt. Oh, is my, is, well, is what I've come to believe a saving faith? And the Christian of John's day began to think, well, have we missed something? Is there more? Is there less? Should I feel some kind of ecstasy? Should I have superpowers or something or other? Can it really be as simple as trusting that in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, I have eternal life. John says, yes, it is that simple. That's the, that's the, that's the end of all matters around faith. This is faith. This is, not just, this is a faith that's overcome the world. It has made you a new creation. It's not something that you've dragged up yourself. It's a gift. It's the work of God. And all through the letter, if you can cast your mind back, John kept saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence around that. And John laid out three main evidences for us. And they were right doctrine to believe the eyewitness testimony that was around Jesus. Deep heart transformation. The joyful obedience to God's requirements. You, you now love to live a life that honors God. You hate sin. This is not natural to normal people. That's evidence that, that you have a saving faith. And then radical love of fellow Christians and even those around you. And we use that phrase, natural born enemies, united in grace. You actually love Collingwood supporters. You probably will uh, barrack for them next weekend. Who knows? These are the undisputable evidences that you have a saving faith, that grace has come into your life. And now as John wraps up his letter, he returns to the nature of evidence that confirms and assures the believer that they have a, the faith that they have in Jesus is a saving faith. Uh, what he uses the phrase, eternal life. That Jesus indeed is the Son of God, not merely a man, not merely a myth, but the Messiah. And, and as this letter, as this final little moment of this letter comes to a head, the, the scene is kind of one of a, of a courtroom scene because John's been all about evidence now. And what John now does is he brings a witness to affirm the evidence that's been laid out in this letter. 
And the first witness to the stand that John calls is God himself. In verse 9, John makes the point that when two or three people give evidence that collaborates, we accept it as truth. John says, God has provided three testimonies that declare unanimously. They agree. They they unite in the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And this word Christ means that he's the Messiah, the promised salvation of God. Firstly, the water and the blood. Now, there's been several ideas put forward as to what these, what water and blood means. However, in the context of the passage, they're obviously separate events in the life of Jesus' ministry. So it's nearly impossible not to conclude that the water speaks of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his death of Jesus. And John opens with this line, This is he who came. Uh, by these witnesses. This is he who came by the water, by the blood. In this sentence, this is he who came. It's a sentence that's loaded with uh, huge significance. It kind of carries a bit of a, a messianic content to it, that the one who was to come. When, when John the Baptist in Luke 7 and in Matthew 11 was questioning the identity of Jesus, like, ah, oh, Are you really the one who is to come, is the phrase he uses. When John, now John the the apostle writing this letter, uses this phrase, he who came, he is using this messianic language that surrounded the Messiah, the one who would come, the promise of God. His Messiah has come. He was sent by God. He existed prior to his coming. And when he came, it was as a man, as a baby. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus did not lose or diminish his glory. He merely sets it aside as as the divine son of man came to us. And one of the ways that he comes to us then in his ministry is through baptism. Not to deal with his sins, he had none. But he comes to us to identify with us, to identify of our need for baptism, of our need for cleansing, of forgiveness. This is God come in the flesh to identify with the need of humanity to be forgiven, washed clean, made new, a new creation. We have a God who has not stayed away from us. Is not indifferent to us, but has come. Has come and made decisive statements about our need. And has come and acted in a decisive manner towards us. Jesus is saying, and he's making the point, it's, uh, it's kind of spatial, transitory language. Jesus is saying the same Jesus that came into the world as a child came through and to us through baptism as well. Nothing of his nature changed at that moment because the rumors were going around that Jesus is just a normal man, born up Mary and Joseph, and then at his baptism, his nature changed. The Spirit of God came upon him and he became this kind of superpower, if you like. And John said, no, that's not the case at all. The same Jesus that was born of the Virgin came to us through baptism. He didn't change at all through that. This was God 
identifying with the need of humanity to be forgiven. John is saying the same Jesus that came into the world as a child, came to us through baptism well, nothing of his nature changed, but the mission became clear. He is here to deal with sin and our need to be free from sin. That's what the significance of this moment is. Baptism was the way the divine identified with the dead and said, I am here to bring life. I am here to bring life as your saviour, as the saviour of the world. It was where God identified Jesus as his son and said, here, here is the saviour of the world. John, John the Baptist says it himself. Well, John lists that the spirit is the third witness uh, in this testimony. It is obvious that the spirit is linked in the context of this passage. The spirit is linked to this significance of the baptism. John writes in John 1, in the gospel of John. It's getting confusing, isn't it? The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is he saying that? How does he know that? This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and he said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize the spirit, God who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And he's speaking of Jesus. John is referring to the baptism of Jesus, which is recorded in Matthew 3. There, Matthew tells us that the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Identifying Jesus not as just someone who's become something, but someone who has come as something into the world. The Spirit is, in, the Spirit is involved historically in that historic moment. And the Spirit is involved also in an ongoing sense to continue to bear witness to Jesus that he is the one who has come to be the forgiveness of sins. No doubt, though, John is not using the Spirit's witness as merely being at that baptism, but that the Spirit now testifies to Jesus in a continuing role. It is the Spirit who confirms in a person's heart the truth of Jesus, as he did with John the Baptist. Jesus told us this would be the case. The Spirit who is truth will guide you in truth, convict you of your sins, expose you of your need for a saviour. The spirit of truth of God who identifies with... It's the spirit of God who bears to the truth, testifies, gives witness to, of a God who identifies with and dies for sinners. It's extraordinary, is it not? That this is how God would come to us. That same understanding of witness is applied to Jesus' death by the testimony of the blood. The work of a saviour that was commissioned at his baptism is now seen as being finished at the cross. 
Again, John's emphasis is on the fact that the cross did not change Jesus. Nothing miraculous was added or subtracted from Jesus on the cross. He is the Christ on the cross. But the cross is not so much about, well, it is about who Jesus is, but what he was doing on our behalf as the Christ. Jesus no more belongs at a baptism for repentance than he does on a cross for sinners. But he comes to us by both to identify with sinners and to die on their behalf. And John is saying it's just simple historic facts. No matter how you feel about it, these are the facts. This is how, this is how God chose to dis- demonstrate, to disclose the nature of his son and who he was. While the voice of God was heard at the baptism, you know, this is my son who I'm well pleased. It's the presence of God that is felt at Jesus' death. And the significant evidence was supplied to testify that this was an event of divine wrath and judgment towards sin. God didn't speak, but he acted in accordance with history. It's interesting that that Sam read that psalm this morning that speaks of when the presence of God is around darkness, the earth trembles, fire, smoke. These kind of things are the manifestation of God's presence and judgment towards sin. Again, in Matthew's Gospel, we read that there was darkness that filled the earth at the death of Christ, that it shook the place, that there were great earthquakes. These are the accompanying signs of the presence of God from the Old Testament. God is here saying, my judgment is falling not on humanity, but on my son. Added to this is the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. This death is not merely uh, incurring the wrath of God, but it has satisfied the wrath of God. It's removed the divide between God and humanity. Graves are flung open. Death has lost its grip and power. And God puts his testimony to the work of the cross. I am saving sinners from my wrath and my judgment. Standing there, watching it all unfold as a Roman soldier who is the first to trust the evidence. And we, we read that, that little inscription where the Roman soldier says, this man really was the Son of God, or God's Son. The Son of God who came. He existed before and He came. And when He came, He came as one of us. And He identified with our need, our need to be forgiven of sin. But not as another sinner, but as one who would provide the healing, provide the sin bearing. He came to us by blood. The same Son of God becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it's faith, it's trust to believe in this alone that brings eternal life. And the function of the Spirit is to testify to the truthfulness of this message, of this gospel, of these historic facts. Jesus said that, that, that when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into truth. It's John 16. The spirit is not just a witness to these events of Jesus' life, but the one who comes now and takes the, the, the scripture, the, record, the recorded eyewitness testimony of the apostles and, and, and brings their meaning into your heart and confirms in your heart the truthfulness and the effectiveness of them. 
these, this is the threefold testimony that God has given about his son. No other figure in human history, no other biblical figure has had such a testimony around them. No prophet, no priest, no king. It's singular and unique. The water, the blood and the spirit. This is the evidence trail that God provides to convict Jesus as the Christ. And John is saying to argue against this is to call God a liar. Or maybe as Bertrand Russell said, the great 19th, 20th century atheistic philosopher, he contends that well, this wasn't enough evidence. It wasn't the right kind of evidence. But God says, it's my evidence. And it is enough. And it is sufficient. To trust the witness of people over the testimony of God is foolish. John is convinced that it's not an evidential issue, though. It's an issue of the heart. We want things on our own terms. We want to say, perhaps we say, you know what? I don't need a Jesus. I don't need saving. I can save myself. There is no God. I, I can make my own way in this world. If there's going to be any saving, it'll be done through my own means. I don't need a God who would come and call me a sinner and then say he would die for me. Or maybe we say, oh, I'm too bad. You, you might have come and died for sins, but you, ha- you ain't seen my story. And what we then say is, grace is not enough. I must work. I must do something. I must, I, must, I must become God of my own heart and clean myself up a little bit. Or maybe we modify the, um, the witness, the, the evidence that God has given us that it is just purely through his son and you must accept this and this alone. And we say, oh yeah, I like the idea of a Jesus who saves me from my sin. But um, if he could just come in and just make my life good and, and not really talk to me too much about the fact that I'm sleeping with my neighbor's wife or anything like that. I don't want my life to change too much. I just want salvation. We want it sometimes on our own terms. And God says no. These are the terms. This is the testimony. God says the object of saving faith is his son Jesus alone who came into the world as God and, and as, as a person to identify with and die on behalf of sinners. That's all there is to it. That's all you need. Not to become a sinner but to stand in the place of sinners and exchange his life for theirs. The testimony of this exchange is then seen in those who believe that they have the Son of God. This is what John moves on to. And the life he gives is borne witness to by their continued practice of a life that now rejects sin and lives to God. Whoever believes is this this phrase, whoever believes, whoever believes has the Son of God. Whoever believes is written in what is called uh, present tense. It's a present participle. It's a I don't know what they call it, a, a something that modifies the verb. But it's written in these tense to say that it's an ongoing action. It's not an event. It's ongoing. It's happening. The belief is not an event. It's something you wake up and do every single day. You, you go, yes, God has said that. I believe it now. I put it into action. 
It's reliance on the saving work of Jesus. It, belief is not merely a pledge. It's not merely a sinner's prayer or a code. It's not a feeling that comes and goes. It's a new way of doing life that is a result of the threefold testimony that's transformed your heart. That has become a deep heart conviction. Whoever believes, whoever has this ongoing action in their life. For those who receive the testimony of God about his son, then a further witness is added. John ties the outer confession of Jesus, uh, this, this witness of God as the son of God, uh, this, this gospel that comes to us of, of a God who comes and dies on our behalf, to the inner witness we have within ourselves. This witness did not come from within, but has made a home in us. We we saw earlier in the letter, if you can remember, that the Spirit has deposited truth in us like a seed that will grow in faith. We have accepted God's testimony about Jesus. It's not about how we feel, but about a conviction. The external witness, faithfully trusted, becomes an internal certitude. It becomes, it becomes a confidence Something that we wake up into daily that we can base our lives on. God has said, we now live. Finally, John calls the witness of what is called eternal life as evidence. Eternal life is not merely the duration of life, but, but, but primarily a, a quality of life that is enduring. Eternal life is not uh, the experience of life that we have that, that lasts forever, but it is actually a new experience of life that is guaranteed to endure forever. Eternal life is something you never had before you believed in Christ. And it comes to you only by believing in Christ. And it's a quality of life. What is this eternal life? It is the it's the entitlements and the outworking of the life of the risen Lord Jesus applied into your life. It's a life that has overcome the world. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer controlled by death. Free from both because Jesus is victorious over both. And now that's applied to you. So what this means is, Every time you feel as though you are not saved, you are not good enough, you've done something that disqualifies you from this claim, you do not wallow around in self-loathing, in shame. You, as John has said earlier, you, you, you know that you can confess these things and agree with God that you still need grace and not stand in your own capacity but stand in the capacity of jesus who has come to us in the water and the blood who has come to us to say i know you need saving and here's how i'm going to do it and you don't operate out of feelings or environments or circumstances but you bring to mind the evidence the truth claims and let the spirit of god remind you of who holds your soul This is the gift of God to us, Jesus. This is the object of our faith. As he is risen to enduring life and intimate relationship with God, so are we, those who trust him.
Whoever has the Son has life abiding in them. Trusting in Jesus, trusting in Him daily and not in our own efforts is actually eternal life. It's participating in eternal life and and it's operational in us now. We don't have to wait for this. And that's the final matter of it, John says. This is what faith is. It's not a mystery. It's not subjective. It's not a construction of human engineering. It's a daily practice of relying on Jesus. That he has dealt with our sin and is continuing to do so and is continuing to lead us into life. Let me tell you something. Nothing in this world has the power to rob you of that fact. Because it's a fact. Feelings, circumstances, environments that you experience do not change spiritual realities that exist. That's why John is at pains to say it's the evidence that holds this in place. It's not attached to you. It's all external. It's all about what Jesus has done and how the Spirit applies that to your life. So no matter what gets pushed across the table, no matter what new slick-sounding idea comes across the table, if it's not Jesus, it's not saving. We're going to sing a song and it wraps it up beautifully. Who the Son has set free is free indeed. No doubt, no bout of depression, no, no slip into momentary moral failure, no rising shame from the past can change this. What, Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God found in Christ? Not a single thing. Not, not a single thing can take it from your soul. Read through Romans 8. You have been ransomed from death to life. Chosen by God for life. God is now for the Christian, not against them anymore. That's why the veil's torn. The work of the cross was complete. You are who God says you are. Feelings, circumstances, environment, or the testimony of God to those who believe that His Son came as God, identified with human need, and then met that need on a cross, is eternal life to those who believe it. Child of God, live accordingly.